is a leader. Everyone leads someone somewhere. Everyone has influence over someone. We all have our circles of influence where God has strategically placed us to be a witness for him. And we are either influencing and leading people away from the cross, or we are either influencing and leading people towards the cross. That's it. That's life. That's why we're here. We're leading people towards Jesus or we're leading people away from Jesus. Nehemiah was a wonderful leader. He's not the only leader in the Bible, but he's a good model. And so today we need to recognize that all of us, students, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, carpenters, mechanics, electricians, businessmen, salesmen, ranchers, real estate agents, etc., that we have influence and we need to be leading people towards the cross. We need to know that we have influence as individuals in our family, both our physical family and the spiritual family of the church and in our community, both in our places of work and our places of recreation, etc. We all lead somewhere. And we are learning today what the first and most important thing a leader must do. And we're learning about prayer. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to just review the entire Chapter, and we're going to see that 1 1 through 3 is Nehemiah's concern, and 1 4 through 11 is Nehemiah's confidence. We see a report given to Nehemiah, and we see his immediate response. 1 1 through 3 of Nehemiah chapter 1 reads this The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, or if I, as I was in the citadel of Susa, that Hanani, one of my brothers, my physical descendants, came with certain men from Judah, my spiritual brothers and sisters. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and I asked them concerning Jerusalem, concerning the people of God, and concerning the glory of God. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And last week we learned that Nehemiah had a deep concern for two things. God's glory, the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was not so much concerned about rock and mortar as what that represented that Jerusalem was the place of joy, and we sang about it today, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And in that Psalm 84, it says God loves Jerusalem because that's the place where he is manifested, where the world could see him through the temple. God's glory and the good of his people, they were in great trouble and shame. His, the deepest concerns of this man who was in about 900 miles from where he wanted to be were outside of himself, Outside of Hanani and his brother, it was outside of that. It was something bigger than himself. This was a layman, and we'll see that in a few minutes. But this layman was concerned with God's heavenly business. He had a deep concern for the good of God's people and the glory of God. And his first reaction, we're going to see a biblical model of leadership spelled out in this book, but we're going to see... Most importantly, it's the glory of God, and we're going to see how Nehemiah works that out. And the very first thing he does is in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words. It doesn't say a week later when I was reflecting upon what my brother and the other friends from Judah had said to me. 
It didn't say a month later, oh yeah, I remembered. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. And we said that that, that sitting down represented Nehemiah took time. He, he, he slowed down his life. And he wept and he mourned for days. That he felt compassion for that situation. And then he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. My charge to us last week, including myself, there were cards on the chairs. There's some of there, some of them out on that back table. It was a little card, Nehemiah 1:4, a call to all of us for 90 days, starting last Friday through Christmas. What can God do through me and you? And I challenged us to fast and to pray. The idea of fasting normally is going without food, and I would highly recommend that you fast in the normal sense in that most of us don't have medical reasons to not go without food. And I encouraged us, if, if there were medical reasons or if it just doesn't work in your schedule that you can't go without food, there are other things that we can fast from. TV, um, social networking, etc. But to take something in our life that's important to us, I would encourage you again to go with food and to remove it so that your tummy feels that ache of, I need some food, and to replace that with prayer. To replace it with prayer for both something in your individual life, in your family's life, and as your family connects to this church and this church and this valley, to pray for something bigger than yourself. What can God do through me and you? And You don't need to know the details of these, but here are mine. I wrote them down. Why do I write them down? Because I am a sinner and I am forgetful. And so if I don't write them down, I will be thinking, I know there was something good I was going to pray about. Don't quite remember. So I wrote them down. And as you saw in the email, so I lose this reward in heaven. That is okay with me. I just wanted to set the example to you. I'm choosing a day a week to go without food. Uh, why? Because I, I won't. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty. I'm a pretty good sinner that I can go without a meal or two and kind of work it. But about three o'clock in the afternoon, that's when it starts to hurt, and that's when I need to get alone with the Lord and say, God, here are the things you've placed upon your heart. Here is what you are doing to make me worthy of your calling. Here is what you are doing by your power to fulfill every resolve for good by the work of faith and prayer. That was my challenge to all of us, including myself, and that is my challenge again to you today. I don't think God works on a timetable so much, so if you just get this card today and it's the 27th, that's okay. I think he'll cut you some slack. But Take one of these cards. Put it on your monitor of your computer. Put it by your TV. Put it in your kitchen where you have your favorite cereal or put it right next to the Smiling Moose menu, just to remind you that there's something that we need to be involved in and Nehemiah's first response, his natural reaction because of his, what I will show you, he had been steeped in the scriptures immediately. He sat down and he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. And this is what he said. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. If you noticed on your outline there, the first thing that Nehemiah did in his prayer was to praise God. O God of heaven. And he is using the language of Daniel. He is using the language of Moses. In fact, in a few minutes, I will show you exactly. He quotes Deuteronomy. Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan, quotes Deuteronomy. And Nehemiah said, O Lord God of heaven, you are the God over all. The God of heaven. He's the great and awesome God. He is almighty. He is, a, he is the promise keeper who keeps his covenant of steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. The first thing Nehemiah said in his prayer is he praised God and he said, you are awesome. Nehemiah knew the God to whom he prayed. You are awesome. You're the God that said to the stars, you go here and you go there. And you're the God that made stars with just a shrug of your shoulder. Nehemiah knew a God who was so big that none of the troubles on earth scare him, concern him. Even our little troubles. What makes us think our little troubles are so big? He knew an awesome God. He knew a great and awesome God whom he feared. Like the Grand Canyon. He he respected its beauty. But he didn't dance on the edge. This was an awesome God. It's the God of heaven. Great and awesome. Oh, how I've misused that term awesome in my life. Oh, man, that is that was awesome. Really? It was that really? It's like the word love. We just so miss. I love Klondike bars. Do I really love them? Do I sacrifice for them? Do I serve them? No. In the same way, man, did you see that play the other day? That was awesome. You know, the guy made a good one-handed grab. It was a great catch. It wasn't awesome. God is awesome. He is awe-inspiring. He is literally an awful God. He is full of awe. Not awful in the sense that we use it, but he is full of awe. And, praise God, he's approachable. If he's just awesome, that's scary. But he's approachable. So we should have a fear of the Lord, but also we should come near the Lord. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. God is personified here. God is a spiritual being, John 4.24. But Nehemiah knows that God sees his situation and that God hears his prayer, that he is a God that's so awesome. He's the creator of the universe. And, And to think about this, will boggle your mind. The creator of the universe says we can come near him. Says we can approach him. He is awesome and he is approachable. He, Nehemiah, praised God for his character, who he is, the God of heaven, great and awesome, and what he does. He's approachable. He is one that we can come to and he is one that we can depend on. He is the covenant keeper of steadfast love with those who keep covenant with him. We can approach him. And so the question that I want to throw out for all of us coming from a book called Be Determined by Warren Wiersbe is, is the God we worship big enough to handle the problems we face? Do we, do we come and praise an awesome God? And do we approach him? 
Nehemiah began his prayer with theology. Theology gets a bad rap this day, but these days, but theology is the proper foundation for devotion. We do not, as Ecclesiastes 5, run quickly into the presence of God. We go slowly and humbly. And you notice what he said there? To hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And over and over through these verses, you will see your servant, Moses, your servant, Moses, your servants, your servant, your servant, your servant. Nehemiah knew who he was in res- with respect to this awesome and approachable God. God is the king. Amen? And we are his subjects. God is the main actor. God is the headliner. And we just have supporting roles. God is the main headlines. God should be, if this world were a Christian world, the headlines would be talking about God all the time. He is the main actor. And we are the supporting actors and actresses. And notice what it said. He prayed. He fasted and mourned for days. And now I pray before you night and day. And in a few minutes we'll learn that he's the cupbearer. So he didn't just withdraw from society. He was not a monk who just left his high position in the court and went and for 90 to 100 days said, you know, the pastor there gave me... a charge to fast and pray. He gave me a little card, and Nehemiah just said, well, I'm just going to go for 90 days and get away from it all. Nehemiah lived out what Paul would later say, he prayed without ceasing. He prayed without ceasing. He had an attitude of prayer. Did he pray sometime, somewhere? Amen. But he went throughout his whole days, day and night, all the time, in an attitude of prayer. And so the first thing we do is praise God for who he is and what he does. We approach God, the awesome God, on our knees as servants. And then look what he says at the end of 6. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, key phrase, even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah was honest. He was realistic. And he was urgent with his confession. He moves from praise to repentance. Praise God, repent from sin. And here's the unique thing about Nehemiah. Is he knew the sins of the people. He so was steeped in the word that he knew how he could rightly pay, pray for his brothers and sisters. It wasn't just Nehemiah's... Uh, he wasn't just irked about something and went to God with sins, petty things that he should overlook, Proverbs would say, to overlook a transgression. He went with right things because he was steeped in the Scriptures and he prayed for the sins of the people. And he said, I'm part of the mess. I'm part of it. Even I and my father's house have sinned. You could say that he saw clearly to take the log out of his own eye to see the specks in the eyes of his countrymen. And he said here in 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
He heaps up all the terms for God's law, the commandments, the statutes, and the rules. It's just they're all there. And he's just saying we have committed sins of commission, things we have done that we shouldn't have done, and sins of omission. We have not done some things that you have called us to do. He captures it all. And he says, we have acted very corruptly against you. That's how he begins it, against you. He doesn't just say, we've broken a bunch of rules. Let's just get right. We were rule breakers, now we're going to be rule keepers. It's not so much about rules, it's about a relationship. Let's look at that again, verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you. Against God. Against the almighty and approachable God. He says, we have acted corruptly. And we have. We, at this body, the churches in this valley, the church in America, 